there are a lot of question marks about the energy transition and how much LNG Japan is going to need over the next 20 years. That's a really attractive proposition for a company. And that's why Jera is becoming more nimble and, and, and is getting into trading. And you're seeing Tokyo Gas and Osaka Gas follow them with setting up trading desks, large trading desks in Singapore. And so that's that, that could be one explanation uh, for it. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Hi, Stephen. Thank you very much for joining us on Smarter Markets. And before we get going into LNG, I got to give you a Hoya Saxa. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. my I, I went to Georgetown. Uh, when I was there 10 years ago, our basketball team was okay. I don't know how we're doing right now, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I saw that in your background, and um, I'm Georgetown uh, alum. I went to Georgetown for my master's in law called an LLM. So when I saw that you went to Georgetown, I said, great, I have to give them the appropriate welcome. And then it also just made me wonder, before we get sort of started on LNG, just how did you end up from, you know, Georgetown to Singapore with Bloomberg working in LNG? It seems like a um, an interesting journey. So I'm just curious, what was your journey to LNG? I kind of fell into it, but I, I guess I fell in love with it because I, I am very passionate about LNG and, and natural gas. But my background when I was in high school and in college was uh, studying uh, Japanese in Japan. My high school had a Japanese course. I was lucky enough to be able to take that. And it was one of the few things that I really enjoyed studying. So when I got to college, I was like, you know, what do I want to study? And I wanted to study Japanese and maybe do like an IR route or something like that. And Georgetown has a fantastic language program. So I decided to go there. And through my studies, you know, I, I just became more passionate and interested in Japan. And as you know, Japan, well, until probably until this year is the world's largest LNG importer. And so when I got a job out of college, I got hired by um, the Sumitomo Corporation, uh, their U.S. office in Washington, D.C., and to look at legislative matters. I was a legislative analyst. And one of the many things that I was looking at was shale gas as well as LNG exports because Sumitomo had just invested or, or, or signed a contract with the uh, Cove Point project in uh, Maryland. And so that was one of the things that I looked at. And as I analyzed this, you know, in college, I never really studied energy. I mean, it's, I think as an undergrad, there are very f- few opportunities unless you're in Houston or something. Probably, probably even there, nobody really studies energy. You do like engineering. Right. There's very few energy programs around the world. Which is unfortunate in a lot of ways because I, you know, I'm very passionate about it and I, I, I wish I could have learned more when I was younger, but I learned it on the, sort of learned it on the job and I became very passionate about it. You know, I was writing a lot of reports internally and the more I was writing, uh, the more I realized, man, I would love to write for a wider audience and I would really make a shift more to writing for f- folks everywhere. I kind of picked up a passion about uh, you know, educating myself about energy topics. And there was a position opening up uh, at Bloomberg in Tokyo for, uh, to, for an energy reporter. And, and I thought, man, you know, might as well try. I have no background in journalism, but I, I'm really passionate about it and I, I know a little bit. So I applied and I got lucky to get hired. And I and that's how I kind of entered Bloomberg. And then after a while, 
of writing about energy in Japan. I was writing a lot about LNG because Japan is such a large LNG importer. There was an opportunity to go to Singapore and kind of really take on the LNG beat in Asia, uh, which was still kind of being defined because LNG is still a somewhat new in terms of the spot market. It's still somewhat uh, young compared to oil or other markets. So I kind of jumped over to Singapore in 2018, late 2018. And I've been there ever since. And, and I love it. You know, I love writing about it. I love learning about new things. I love hearing about what people are are doing and making stories, not just for, you know, the LNG nerds like me. You know, I'll write about, oh, you know, someone's selling a cargo to this person or this facility is offline, but also writing the larger articles that can go into Bloomberg Business Week that explain the market to a wider base of people because LNG and, and natural gas is endlessly interesting. And I think that there are ways to explain it to depending on on who you're talking to to kind of capture that audience and that's why i really enjoy yeah well you and i are both drawn i think to the uh, the history of lng and there's a you know there's a few of us around the world <laughs> and i'm one of the, you know i was not a history major in school but i'm i'm one of the sort of believers in if you understand the history of anything you you have a better understanding of the market of today you know you and i follow each other on twitter and well, let me ask you, what do you, what is your pinned tweet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, Hir- Hiroshi Anzai. Um, <laughs> of course, I'm going to ask you about Hiroshi Anzai, which is a bit LNG nerdish, but really interesting and relevant. Yeah, it's super relevant. It's super important. But before I jump into that, you know, Susan, it, this is the first time we're, we're technically meeting, even though we followed each other and respond to each other's tweets for years. Uh, so this is a great, you know, I, I do really appreciate that you uh, invited me to be on this. It's great to meet you, talk to someone else who's as passionate as I am and asking me about Tokyo Gas's Hiroshi Anzai, who, who has a very interesting background. You know, Japan, as I was saying before, you know, Japan is the world's biggest LNG importer and they kind of pioneered how LNG works in a lot of ways. You know, before J- Japan began importing LNG, it was like they were sending a few ships on a great lake in the United States or they were sending things between Algeria and the UK, but it was all very, you know, small scale. It was all very experimental. No one was really looking at it like, how can we run an entire grid? How can we, you know, send all this gas to a lot of households primarily just with LNG? And so uh, Tokyo Gas, uh, Japan's biggest gas distributor, had an executive named Hiroshi Anzai. Um, and this was, you know, he, he was born in the 1800s, uh, but he joined the company at the turn of the century, effectively. And he was with the company during a lot of the company's transition, because back in Japan, the way that Japan distributed its gas before LNG was it would take coal and they would gasify it, same way with the rest of the world. And they would also take, you know, oil and gasify. And there was this transition to try to find ways to get a, a stable supply of gas to their customers. And Anzai read a report in a little journal, you know, when when he was a younger employee about liquefied natural gas um, and now these experiments being done in the UK and in in the United States. And so he became enamored with the idea of bringing this liquefied natural gas to Japan because the, the dream is that in a lot of ways, this LNG is cleaner than the coal or the oil that they were gasifying because at the time, you know, they would have these giant plants in the Tokyo, Yokohama area and they would, the, the smog would be emitting and it would be, it would be thick and deep 
And there were real worries in Anzai's mind about the health of the people in Tokyo, not just the people who work there, but the, but the citizens. And so in his view, he thought, man, if we can get to LNG and actually just use natural gas, which is cleaner burning than the other alternatives, we can really help you know, the air quality in Tokyo and, and the country. And this was like 1950s, 1960s. This was 1950s. Yeah, this was right after World War II. And so Japan was rebuilding and they needed the energy. They had an enormous demand for, for energy and um, because their economy was rebuilding. And so in the 50s, he kind of looked at it. But in the 60s is when he, when he really, you know, he would be going to the UK to see the experiments being done there. He would go to Alaska to talk to potential natural gas suppliers in the US because the first LNG import into Japan was from the U.S. Right, from, from Kenai, Alaska, right? Exactly, yeah. People forget, you know, that Konoko and, and those folks developed LNG there. And he would do, he, would, he was building this idea, but to everyone around him, he sounded crazy because what he was suggesting effectively, and he was telling people, I want someone to drill gas in Alaska. I want them to put it into a giant refrigerator. I want them to freeze it. I want them to freeze it so much that it turns into a liquid. Then we're going to design special ships to take that liquid to Japan. And then we're going to put it in a heater when it gets to Japan, turn it back into gas. And by the way, this heater has been designed by no one ever before. All the experimental heaters have been very small. These are going to be huge. And then we're going to distribute it to homes in Japan. And Oh, by the way, when we do that, we're also going to have to upgrade our entire you know, pipeline system in Japan. We can't use the same pipes exactly that we use for the liquefied coal and liquefied oil. So this entire idea sounded mad, but he did it and, and he, convinced, he convinced the right people that it was a good idea. He convinced Tokyo Electric and he convinced Mitsubishi Corporation. And with them together, they built Japan's first LNG import terminal in Tokyo Bay, and they imported the first cargo in 1969, and it was a huge success. And, you know, I'm skipping over a few things. There are some trials and tribulations along the way, and it cost a ton of money, but it worked out. And that's why Japan got to where it is today. And when I read your, your Twitter feed on that, I think I had mentioned I was, I was doing like a little bit of a history project for Giganel, the gas importers group. And I said, well, I really want to use Stevens, <laughs> you know, Anzai-san information. And they were excited about that because it's sort of not many people know about it, but there's, you have a number of pictures posted with Hiroshi-san signing deals. And it just made me think, you know, it always takes somebody to build an industry. You know, he and the, the Tokyo Gas and the Japanese utilities really helped build out an industry. And, it, you know... With, I guess, very little knowledge. There's not that many people that know the history. And so uh, you had mentioned you might be writing a book, which would be great. Man, I would love if, if the natural gas market calmed down. And I would love to just have some free time to write a book. But with prices going to record highs and record lows and all this crazy stuff in between, who has the time? Right. You're going to have to wait. There'll be, there'll be a lull. There's always a lull. (laughs) And so in the downtime, you know, so let, let's talk about record high prices because that is what's keeping you busy and um, what's keeping everybody busy and also worried. I suspect the folks in Japan are a little bit worried that this great industry that was built, you know, 40, 50 years ago is now looking very expensive. Um, Of course, LNG has always been an expensive it's never really been inexpensive other than, you know, pre-COVID or, you know, COVID when we had massive sort of demand destruction, spot prices were cheap. 
So let's talk about some of the pricing issues and what are you seeing from over in Asia? What are the issues in Asia? What are the concerns? Where do you think prices are going to end up? Are we going to have these high prices going into 2022? Those are some really good questions. And I do want to preface this. You know, Everything that I know, I'm just parroting what the experts, what the analysts, what the traders are telling me. I'm, I'm, I'm no analyst. So I can't make predictions on prices, but I can tell you what people are telling me. And what you know, the reason why we are where we are today is for a number of different reasons. And in a lot of ways, it's a, it, it's a bit of a perfect storm of why prices are so high. There was, as you said, there are lulls. There was lull in investment in new LNG export terminals because prices were low. And, you know, there, there are cycles. So there was a lack of new supply that's coming on right about between now and when Qatar has its mega trains coming online in, in 2026, 2027 and beyond. And then on top of that, you know, we had the rebound from COVID. And so with the lack of supply and the booming demand, and and quite frankly, the enormous uh, demand growth out of China, those things combined create a really tight market. And on top of that, you know, you have some delays for major projects. You know, I think some folks maybe a few years ago expected Nord Stream 2 to be online by now for this winter. Or, you know, th- there, there are a number of other things. There, there are some issues in Norway. There are some problems in Malaysia. Indonesia has some issues. But all those sort of small things are, are adding up on top of each other. And that's how we got this price spike. And I think for this winter, I, I, I think the situation in Asia is going to be challenging. But in a lot of ways, last winter might have been could could have potentially been worse. So last winter was was tough for Asia. Um, there was a spike in cold, and the supply and demand issues were already kind of starting to show their head. And so because of that, you saw JCAM's price, prices spike to a record high. Now, we've grown higher than that spike from January, but the utilities weren't prepared in January 2021. Japanese utilities, Chinese, and to some extent the Korean utilities, all were caught short. With LNG, they were kind of lulled over 2020 when demand was very low because of COVID. Prices fell to a record low. You know, they only prepared their LNG supplies and their spot buying to a certain extent. When the cold hit and demand was high and there wasn't LNG, that's when people got really desperate. So because of that, I think a lot of Asian utilities this year have prepared more than they normally would have. So the Chinese have been out in the market buying a ton. You, you've got the Japanese utilities who prepared quite a lot. They're sitting on inventories of LNG that are the highest level in, in at least five years for this time of year. The Korean utilities have also bought a lot. And and I assume you're, you, when you say high, you're, it's in storage. Yes, there's storage. So, and, and, and you do have to remember that storage in Japan is much smaller, the capacity, than the storage in Europe. And so that all being said, they bought the cargoes ahead of time as well, and they say they're prepared. Now, if there is a cold snap, if, if weather is cold, that can all be drained very quickly. If they have to go back into the spot market, there might not be cargoes available for them to buy, depending on the time of year or how much Europe is buying. And so the, the situation for Asia is going to be uh, challenging, but I, I think it, 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 people are optimistic about this year. And maybe pr- if prices rise to record, it will probably be because of Europe. And so that's now I'm going to Europe. I think Europe is in trouble. Um, I think when you talk to analysts, when you talk to traders, when they talk about Europe, Europe is in a very difficult situation with their inventory levels and their ability to track LNG and difficulties with getting pipeline supply from certain producers. And, you know, I think there's this view that really the only thing that can help Europe going forward is if 
Russia were to significantly boost, if they can, significantly boost supply to the region to help refill some of those inventories. And that's the the challenge. And, and as European uh, situation gets worse, the price of gas in Europe will go up. And as the price of gas in Europe goes up, that affects you know the Asian LNG benchmark, JKM, Japan-Korean marker. And that will also go up because these markets are very connected. And so prices in, in Asia could hit a record high uh, again and, and could go even higher than where they were in October when it hit around $55 for MMBTU, which is wild. But that will, I, I think the analysts and, and, and traders all think that could be mostly driven by by Europe. So everyone's really watching Europe. So let me ask you a few questions about Europe, which is, so Europe does have a lot of LNG storage. Uh, Europe has a lot of natural gas storage. They've got enormous uh, caverns underground uh, and they and they fill those with gas. And the benefit of Europe is everything's kind of all connected, right? So each country has their own large storage and they're a much more, they, they've, They've used a lot of pipeline gas, and they have a lot of pipeline connection. And so because of that, they've just developed this culture or, or the industries that, that have a lot of storage. So the storage capacity, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the storage capacity in Europe is much larger than what China, Korea, and Japan have. Because one, it is difficult to actually store physical LNG. So you need to turn it into gas. It's, it's easier to store. But just because of the nature of the LNG industry where it wasn't much of a spot market until recently, these people would always be like, okay, well, we're always going to get our shipment on June 1st, uh, you know, on, on July and August. We're always going to get our shipments because we're just doing bilateral contracts for most of our LNG. There was really no worry about having inventories that were larger than maybe a, a, a few weeks because they, they knew there would be a steady supply of LNG coming in. But as the LNG market turns more global and the spot market expands, suddenly Japan is competing with Brazil or Argentina for LNG. And that becomes a problem because then there's less spot supply and Japan needs to fill that little bit of gap with some spot and it becomes expensive. So, but what's sort of puzzling to me is uh, with Europe, well, there's a lot of puzzling things, (laughs) I think, with Europe. (laughs) One is, okay, why wasn't that storage full when prices were low, you know, all of 2020? So, and also there's, there's something I read too, that apparently Gazprom may own a lot of the storage facilities and have been keeping more gas in Russia. So I'm just sort of curious, you know, okay, did they miss the boat? Because there was plenty of LNG sloshing around during COVID and you could have filled up that storage. So did somebody, you know, miss the boat, so to speak? Or, of course, Europe tends to blame Russia. And then Russia says, we're doing everything we're contracted to do, so don't blame us. (laughs) And, you know, ultimately, I guess the consumer, I don't know who the consumer blames, probably everybody, but ultimately the... (laughs) <laughs> the consumer's really going to be hit hard in Europe this winter. So yeah, in hindsight, you know, when you when when LNG was $1.80 per MMBTU, man, that would have been a great time to buy LNG. And when you look at just US, I mean, you're in the US, look at US LNG, look at all those cargoes that were canceled. The argument for a lot of those cancellations were, okay, well, we're a Japanese company or we're a supplier. Our customers say they're full, they don't need anything. And we can't sell this LNG on the spot market because we're going to lose money. So that's why we're canceling all these LNG cargos. And you know, 80 plus cargos or something were, were canceled in 2020. And it just made economic sense. It wasn't about refilling inventories. And I think no one knew how bad the winter was going to be, how quickly inventories in Europe were going to be drained. And also... Winter was long in Europe. You know, it was it was cold going into you know 
March and April in in Europe, and so that they were still draining the inventories. And Japan and 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 Korea and China were buying up a bunch of LNG because they want to be prepared for the summer. And so you know there were problems with Norwegian supply and Algerian supply, and and so those things combined. So the glasses of hindsight, you know, everything, you know, when you look at everything, twenty twenty. Well, yeah, of course, man, we should have been buying more cargoes we should have been buying cargo strips we should you know ahead of time we we should be buying all the lng from sabine pass train six you know that's coming online right now like it it would have made a lot of sense but at the time it didn't you know that's just how these things work that's that's just how these <laughs> pandemics work it's how these pandemics work well i i think people were not prepared right i i do look back and i wonder like what did people do during the pandemic? Because some people were very prolific and wrote books and got in shape. And then I think policy leaders were overwhelmed with managing COVID and somebody forgot to buy gas. <laughs> oops, oops, who, you know, somebody, oops, somebody forgot to fill up the gas storage while they were worried about COVID. I think it was also challenging to figure out how COVID would affect gas demand because for oil, it's easy. People aren't driving their cars. People aren't flying. Oil demand's low. And and you saw WTI briefly hit negative because their inventories were full in the US. So for gas, I think a lot of people thought, Oh, well, you know, gas demand is going to fall because industries won't be producing as much or, you know, people won't be going to the office. But then there was this, you know, double heating where people where where the offices were kind of open and people were, you know, heating their homes and demand was more resilient than everyone expected. So it was a unique experience. And and I think it's, you know, you can't really blame the people who who aren't prepared now because no one really knows. And, and and a lot of the times the suppliers at some points were struggling with maintenance issues as well as they were trying to get, they were having difficulties getting people to maintain their facilities because of COVID restraints. And then the Panama Canal happened and there were some delays there as well. So it's a very complicated issue. But I think because of that, you know, Asia took that very seriously. And that's why they pay so much more for their LNG than Europe is able to. Right. Because for Asia, going, you know, back to sort of early days, security of supply. I mean, I can't, even count on my hand. How many times in my, in ten years ago when I would attend conferences, security of supply was you know a topic was a topic at every LNG event. Security of supply, security of supply, and another way to look at security of supply is Japan historically paid up and they signed long term contracts and they paid a premium price because they absolutely needed the gas. You know, and and that that was it. There weren't uh, a whole lot of other choices. So there was a recent deal that JIRA announced that kind of reminds me in, in some ways of some old times, which is they, they said they wouldn't renew one of their long-term deals with Qatar Gas. But they said, you know, don't worry, don't make too much of this. They now have a 25 plus percent stake in Freeport. So I'm assuming they think they can just get offtake from Freeport to kind of replace that. And that struck me as sort of a diversity of supply, also security of supply kind of deal. And I'm just curious what your take on it is. And do you think if we'll see more deals like this? Because I think a lot of Japanese contracts are are rolling off, if if I'm not correct. You know, that is interesting because Jera is unlike any other Japanese utility in the sense that they have a very large trading desk and they have a lot of supply that they can play with. And so when you talk to the analysts and they say, you know, why would Jera, who needs a lot of LNG, why would they possibly want to get off of the Qatar contract? You know, that's that could be relatively cheap. Qatar is offering really low slope. And you kind of have to look at Jera more like a trading house now because Jera GM in Singapore 
is becoming more active, and Qatar supply doesn't have much flexibility. Yeah, you could divert a cargo here or there, but Qatar basically controls their supply. Um, and if you need a cargo to go somewhere, Qatar is helping you do that. When you're getting supply from the United States, you, you just bring your ship there and you can bring it anywhere you want. And that's what you know, Jera said in their press conference after they announced the, the deal for Freeport. They said, you know, we can bring that LNG to Europe and we can bring that LNG to Japan. And in the world where there are a lot of question marks about the energy transition and how much LNG Japan is going to need over the next 20 years, that's a really attractive proposition for a company. And that's why Jera is becoming more nimble and, and, and is getting into trading. And you're seeing Tokyo Gas and Osaka Gas follow them with setting up trading desks, large trading desks in Singapore. And so that's that that could be one explanation uh, for it. You know, we just actually published a story about 20 minutes before this this started. I, I wrote a story about how uh, even though, you know, COP26 happened uh, just a few weeks ago, the Japanese government has been going around talking to utilities, as well as other trading houses and refiners, to tell them to slow down their move away from fossil fuels. And they're even encouraging them to invest in oil and gas projects because of this security of supply. They're worried that what happened over the last year with the supply shortage, while they think that they're going to be fine for this winter, this could happen again and again and again because people aren't investing enough in gas. And when you look at the trading houses, I started my career at Sumitomo Corporation. They're out. They're out of shale gas. They were the first Japanese company to come into the United States and invest in US shale. Now they're out because they see the writing on the wall and they think their their investors are pressuring them to get away from fossil fuels and and look into new uh new areas. And that's not just Sumitomo, it's it's Marubeni. They're getting out of offshore oil. It's all these trading houses. And so well, as that happens, um, according to our article, you know there are uh, some warning signs in the Japanese government saying, "Man, maybe we should we should boost our investments. We shouldn't be doing this so quickly." So they're quietly urging them to do that. That'll be you know welcome news to a lot of our listeners, especially from the U.S., <laughs> because there is a third wave of U.S. LNG that's you know in the pipeline. But it's interesting, and it definitely one of the themes we've had sort of on the podcast is you know the energy transition, and it's not you know energy transitions are not fast. <laughs> they they historically have have never been fast because energy is in, in a way slow moving and you know it takes a, a billions of dollars of investment and everybody wants to recoup their investment so the infrastructure is on the ground for for decades and you mentioned with Japan you know pipelines are configured for gas so what are we going to do about that and um, technology has always sort of come along but some people I think assume I'm a fossil fuel person. I mean, I did work at Chevron, but I really don't have a dog in the fight. I really just think of myself as a consumer and anything is fine. But, you know, when people start to talk about uh, getting rid of gas, gas now isn't clean enough. I'm like, well, what? Give me an alternative. And I just haven't seen it, right? It's not hydrogen yet. Uh, nuclear, I guess. And Japan has a lot of nuclear. So nuclear's an option. But, you know, Japan had that horrible Fukushima event. Um, that sort of scared a lot of folks away from nuclear. So there's not many other options out there. And and so it sounds like the Japanese officials, in my view, are doing the right thing, saying, wait a second, before we really, before we really shun natural gas, let's make sure there's an alternative. You know, I, I think 
the the industry is in a bit of a crossroads because the the IEA is coming out and they're saying, you know, to hit the most ambitious climate goals of keeping the world from warming 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial uh, times, we do need to stop investment in oil and gas. And I think that message is being read differently in different regions. And, and you can see that in, in the articles that we write and the analysts that we talk to with the US and Europe responding quite differently than Asia. And what you mentioned is the view of a lot of governments and, and traders and utilities that gas is going to be needed. But in a lot of ways, you know, you look at what Anzaisan did. He, I don't think anyone expected LNG to be built as as such an important part of Japan's energy mix in in the span of 20 years and and get Indonesia and in Malaysia and, and all these, you know, the Japanese went around the world effectively investing in these facilities to build up this enormous base. And so with that mindset, if you have that mindset of innovation, and if you have that mindset, man, we can do this with ammonia, we can do this with hydrogen, uh, if you can get the right person and the right team to dream it, potentially there is a way to do it. But then there is a view, of course, from, from other folks who think that, well, just as a backup, we shouldn't put all of our eggs in one basket and we have to keep investing in fossil fuels because we have to keep our lights on and keep our economy running. So there are there are diverging views. I also, you know, I have no opinion. As a journalist, I, I don't have an opinion. I just chronicle it. Right. That That's sort of how I feel. I think uh, LNG is an interesting industry. Other industries are, are interesting and let's see what develops. And um, at the moment, gas seems to be still in the, it's a, it's a great option at the moment. In 20 years, maybe we'll be having a podcast. Well, I'm sure someone will be having a podcast about hydrogen. Well, maybe not actually, because 20 years ago, I had a student in my international trade class. I used to teach WTO in the environment and one of my students referred me to Jeremy Rifkin's book, The Hydrogen Economy. So that was 20 plus years ago. So hydrogen does seem to come up every, same with carbon capture, <laughs> every 10 to 20 years. And maybe a little bit of progress is made. But so far, uh, hydrogen hasn't emerged really as a fuel source. Carbon capture mm, hasn't really materialized either, I think, like people would like it doesn't mean people aren't still working on it. And so maybe we'll see those two take off in the near term. But it seems like at least in the near term, we're going to be using as much and probably more gas going forward. I think for Japan and China and you know North Asia, it is challenging. There are a lot of barriers and hurdles for them to get away from gas because first they have to get it from coal. And they don't have enough nuclear capacity or other baseload capacity or the batteries to do that. You know, one thing that the governments are looking at, Korea and Japan especially, is offshore wind. And they're looking at that really aggressively. And that could be an answer because these facilities are going to be... Have you seen these pictures of the of the scale of these offshore wind? I have to say, I mean, they're, they're huge. Uh, you know, they're modern marvels of engineering. And there are challenges. Of course, there are challenges with everything. And there's challenges with, you know, getting that built. But... That's something that these governments are also doubling down. So there are options, but there are just as many options. There are as many hurdles to get away from from natural gas. And that's why in our report, you know, the Japanese government is worried about investment because if there isn't enough investment in upstream supply, then potentially, you know, these supply shocks could become more um, more common in the future. Absolutely. 
So what is the uh, mood? Uh, and, you know, I guess sort of related to that, uh, one of your colleagues had an article about uh, potential bankruptcies in the Japanese power markets. And so I'm curious what your take in, uh, on that is, because there have been a number of bankruptcies in the power sector in Singapore, I think, and now Japan may be facing more. And so what's your view of that? In the last six months, bankruptcies of, they're actually power retailers. So they're not power generators. Power generators are doing great. It's the people who buy the power and then they retail it, they sell it to you and me, households. And so I don't have the same power provider as I did three months ago. Um, but in Singapore, it, my, my power provider went bust. Uh, and so I have a new power provider. So this is what happens. Power prices are rising because of higher gas, oil, coal prices, right? And so, and there's, if in the UK in particular, there have been some days where there hasn't been enough wind and there was a, uh, there was a line, a power line from, from mainland Europe that was down and there was also high gas prices. So all those things combined created real, a huge surge in UK wholesale power prices. These electricity retailers, the people who provide us with energy, sell us energy at a fixed rate. Our energy, unless there are some contracts uh, that, that are linked to wholesale prices, but for the, the wide majority of prices are a set rate. And we buy it at a set rate. So these energy providers are selling the electricity to us at a set rate, but the energy that they're buying is at a record high. And then they go bankrupt because it just it doesn't match. They have to close. They can't pay for it. They don't have enough money. And so that's what's happened in the UK. It happened in Singapore as well because of a supply problem with, with some pipeline uh, gas that forced power plants to reduce their output. And in Japan, there's a fear that this could happen as well because you're already seeing inclinations. Power prices in Japan, while not as high as where they were in the UK and Singapore when these retailers went bust, Japanese wholesale power prices are the highest level for this time of year ever. They're around trading between 20 and 35 yen per kilowatt hour. I wish I could do the math in my head real quick to translate that into um, dollars per megawatt hour, but it, 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 it's high. Uh, I take take my word for it. It's it's never been this high for this time of year, and so that puts pressure on some of Japan's retailers. Now, Japan liberalized our power market in 2016, and they have over 700 power retailers. Some of them are big. Some of them are like Tokyo Gas. They started a power retailing arm. They sell power. They're big. They'll they'll be fine. They do hedging. They have some power generation capacity. They'll be okay. But there are literal mom and pop shops that have like 30 or 40 customers and they they're they're maybe sponsored by the town or there's a local municipality that started up a power retailer to kind of help as like a co-op sort of thing and those are the folks who are in trouble because if they depend on the spot market and power prices are rising and they have to sell the electricity to households at a fixed rate that's some bad news now when you take a step back in the midst of this huge energy crisis the folks who are worse off are probably these power providers but because of the contracts that we sign, uh, you and me, the regular people, we will. it's unlikely that we're going to be facing huge jumps in prices. In a lot of ways, the system that's in place, we're protected by these retailers effectively going bust. And so what happens is someone else has to take on these, you know, there are regulations in the countries that when the retailer goes bust, someone else will take on the contracts. And usually the terms of the contracts have to change but you're never going to be paying as high as these record high rates. You're going to be paying a little bit more. So it will increase the price for households. But I guess the silver lining is it's nice that there's a system in place where, you know, regular consumers aren't getting price gouged um, by, by what's happening. 
So, all right. So that's, I guess, some, a speck of good news for consumers. And then I assume the government will backstop. Somebody will backstop all if every little mom and pop utility, you know, provider went bankrupt. Somebody hopefully will backstop that. I think the the government would have to. It might not be so much the government, but it might be, you know, TEPCO might just take over all those customers. Right. Somebody would probably step in. So that is, I guess, some good news for consumers. And maybe the same. It sounds like it's similar in Europe, too. Uh, to a degree, yeah. At least in Japan and Singapore, that's that's how it works. Yeah, there are some folks who, who you know, their power bills are linked to wholesale prices um, and, and they are going to be going to be burned. But that's very, very rare in Japan. Very rare. So this is sort of, we talked a lot about, you know, what's going on now. And um, what are you thinking about for 2022? What's your, your view ahead for 2022? I'm going to cop out and say, I think it's just a lot more uncertainty. There are a lot of question marks for 2022. I don't have the crystal ball to say what's going to happen. But I think a few things to watch when I talk to analysts, and when I talk to people, you know, the few things that you want to watch is, you know, where's Chinese growth? You know, I think a lot of China becoming China will become the world's biggest LNG importer this year. They're on track to do that, overtake Japan this year. And now, it, if, if, now if, officially, officially for good, because China did emerge as the world's largest. But, you know, I still give it to Japan, but maybe China. But, you know, maybe China officially now will, you know, on an ongoing basis, be the world's largest importer. So, so far, according to Bloomberg ship tracking data, China has imported so far this year 71 million tons of LNG. Japan has imported 66.4. So they're neck and neck, but I think we've got how many days left? We've got about 29 days left in the year. I think it's going to be tough for Japan to overtake China. So China will, according to Bloomberg ship tracking data, which is under a hoigo, you can see that most likely China will become the world's biggest LNG importer, which is, listen, I mean, the whole reason this goes back to like the whole reason why I'm in this is because Japan was the biggest and I studied Japanese and I got into this and that's kind of how I fell into it. So it is in a strange way, bittersweet. So anyway, uh, looking forward, you know, Chinese demand growth has always surprised folks, I think more often than not. And so how much more China imports and how quickly they get their import terminals online and how much the government pushes for them to secure more international supply when you look at just the last few months, China has signed so many deals with US LNG exporters. And the big one, it was Sinopec and uh, Venture Global, right? Sinopec, Venture Global. And then they'd signed a couple with Chenier too. Right, exactly. Sinochem and, and some other folks. But the Venture Global one, it was huge. It's a huge deal. And it's for their future plant. Um, not the one, you know. There, there is some supply coming from their from their new plant. They'll be turning on very imminently. Then their next plant, the name also escapes me. Clackamans. So Venture Globe. So Venture Global. Their first is the Kelkashu uh, Pass, and then they have Plaquemines. Yeah. So Plaquemines is the is the one that you know Sinopec bought a bunch from. So anyway, I think the world is always getting surprised by how much China needs LNG and how much they're willing to buy. And so I think one thing to watch in 2022 is how much their demand grows. Uh, Another thing to watch, of course, is the startup of Nord Stream 2. Now, whether Russia has said that they can supply gas to Europe via their other pipelines, but I think there is market sentiment that when Nord Stream 2 comes online, a lot of the fears about shortages in Europe will dissipate. And they will, to a degree, subside. So, you know, when we talk to analysts, when we talk to traders, 
people say that when, when Nord Stream 2 starts flowing, you're probably going to see gas prices fall pretty significantly. So it's it's interesting to say, some people say when Nord Stream 2 comes online, because that pipeline's already built. <laughs> and then some people pretend like the pipeline hasn't been built. And they say, like, if Nord Stream 2 is built. I, I think the, the market view, and when we talk to analysts, it will come online. Um, now, whether it comes online in February or September, there is a wide range of people with different views. So whenever it comes online, that's something to obviously, that's going to be a big event. Uh, for 2022. And then also, you know, FIDs, you know, there are a lot of, we're talking about the US quite a bit, but there are a lot of US projects that are signing deals. And we could see some FIDs or some more deals, especially as the Japanese government is out there urging their companies to invest in upstream supply. And especially as Australia also came out and said they have to develop one more gas field by the end of the 2020s to help, you know, alleviate these supply shocks that are happening in Europe right now. And so there is probably going to be more investment um, next year and, and to watch the degree of how much. So I guess the to, to round that up, you know, watch China, watch Russia and watch FIDs are the big three that I'm that I'm kind of monitoring at the moment. What, what about you? What, what one one big one? Well, I'm also uh, I mean, because I'm in the US and so many people get excited about more US LNG projects. So always watching for FIDs and went back, you know, 2019 was a record year for LNG FIDs. And uh, I just wrote a paper for the upcoming World Petroleum Congress. And anyway, so in this paper, I went back. So 2019, record year for LNG FIDs. 2020 was supposed to be a great year, then was derailed by COVID. 2021, not such a great year, uh, but maybe 2022. So maybe another wave of US LNG just recently, Exxon said they might invest $18 billion into Papua New Guinea, which took me by surprise because it hasn't, you know, PNG hasn't really been on my radar lately, but Exxon said uh, they might invest more into Papua New Guinea. So always new projects are exciting. And then I sort of like to see the industry grow. Uh, so I'm looking for new importers with Vietnam, I think expected to be an importer in 2022 and I've been to Vietnam and there's a, you know, pre-COVID was a, a big drive, I think, to bring in more gas because they need something. Um, and so gas seemed like a pretty good fit for Vietnam. So I, I, I'm looking to see what Vietnam does in, in 2022 and, and how, how big of an importer they could be. I think potentially they could be a pretty sizable importer for the region. Yeah, they have enormous power demand growth outlook. So they're going to need something to power that. Right. And a big producer, like they produce a lot of goods. But again, you know, a lot of this was pre-COVID. So I'm also still watching COVID because, um, you know, if we have another wave of COVID and lockdowns in a way, it sort of kicks the can down the road a bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's it's really unfortunate because we're just getting back to, because so many of these deals are about personal relationships and seeing people face to face. And we were just getting back to that, you know, when there's a gas conference in Rome right now, which neither of us are at, unfortunately. But, you know, if all that kind of dissipates again, that could potentially derail uh, progress. Well, it just, you know, it, it creates more unknowns. So I don't know. I think there's a lot of a uh, lot of positive things to look forward to in 2022 for gas markets uh, for decades. Again, we we touched on the energy transition. And when I first started doing the podcast series, there was a whole lot of talk about COP26 and net zero. And net zero 
was looking for a few, you know, net zero was looking like nothing's going to happen for oil and gas. And what I'm hearing from you is that's not really true. In fact, maybe these high prices, if there's been anything good for the oil and gas industry, high prices tends to bring on more investment, tends to encourage folks to make more investments and realize that maybe we're going to be a little bit short. So we better make some new investments. You know, you could see that. But at the same time, I, I do want to preface this with the big, the, the giants, the Shells, the BPs, Exxons, you know, I think in total, I think there is a shift uh, from those. You know, they, they are getting a shift from their shareholders. They're also looking at the future. And while Japan and other countries, the officials might want to push investment, they might not have enough push to get the trading houses or to get the utilities to actually act. Because there is, you know, one thing towards wanting the the industry to do something, and then there's nothing but the industry saying, "Well, our shareholders wants to do something else." So there is going to be this interesting dynamic. I'm I'm curious to see what happens. As you point out, this is a bit unusual in that high prices haven't spurred a whole lot of upstream, and you are hearing more about capital discipline and the big companies saying, "Well, we've got to, in essence." pay back our shareholders for all those really kind of weak shale gas years, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, it turns out our U.S. shale industry was built on a huge pile of debt, and there's a little bit of payback, I think, coming now. And so I don't know how long that's going to last, maybe into 2022, maybe 2023. So we'll, we'll see. So it remains to be seen, a lot of open issues. Are there any issues that I've missed that we should talk about? Oh, you hit, You hit the gambit. I think those are... Those are some really great ones. I think one thing to watch is the methane, the the, the crackdown on methane. I, I find it really interesting how five or six years ago, I feel like no one was talking about methane or, or it was a very smaller group. But now all companies and, and you're even seeing, you know, some producer come out and say, we're going to measure our methane releases. And potentially, you know, buyers are even saying, you know, we don't want to buy uh, LNG that have a lot of methane um associated methane emissions. And my colleagues at Bloomberg have done a fantastic job tracking methane emissions with satellites. All of that combined, I think there's going to be a really big look because when you burn gas, gas is cleaner burning than coal or oil. But there are fears that, you know, depending on how the gas is produced and if there's a lot of methane emissions, it could be just as dirty. So for the industry to keep its, you know, cleanest fossil fuel badge I think we're going to see a larger uh, effort to tackle methane emissions, and and you're already seeing it. So it, it, that's also something that I find very fascinating, and just something to keep on my keep on everyone's radar going forward. I'm glad you brought that up because I I did have a question to ask you about methane emissions, and you're right, it's very much in focus, and a number of groups have recently re- released new data on methane emissions. So Giganol, the gas importers group, launched a framework for greenhouse gas emissions to try to come up with some framework for reporting and some framework for offsetting emissions for certain cargoes. So that effort is underway. Chenier has cargo tags coming in 2022. It's not clear to me what the cargo tags will look like. And so since you sit in the region with mostly buyers, do you think buyers are willing to pay a premium for you know greener gas? I, I, I think... To to buy a premium for greener gas, I think they will if they're if they're customers. So if Tokyo Gas buys LNG and there are tags with it that say that it was produced from cleaner sources, and they're able to prove that legitimately, 
and New Otani Hotel in Tokyo wants to buy that gas from them to say the same thing, then yes, I think Japan will keep doing it. It's not just about the import. It's not just about Jared Tokyo Gas. It's, it's it literally down to the very the actual consumers that matters. So if there is a push within industries, within consuming nations to buy that, then I think it will work. But just efforts by the buyers themselves or like 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 Tokyo Gas or those middlemen in a lot of ways or by the government, I think there it, it could lag because in these highly competitive industries, every cent tends to count. And what you're seeing in Japan, at least, is there are a lot of, a lot of so-called carbon-neutral LNG cargos being delivered. And we can do a whole other podcast on whether or not these shipments should be called carbon-neutral. But there are a lot of deals being done, but a lot of times just one company doing one deal. And then after that, you don't hear about it again. And there is some criticism from analysts and people within the industry who say, well, they're doing this for PR purposes. They're just buying one cargo to make a press release, and, and that's it. This isn't a sustainable thing because at the end of the day, an importer doesn't really need to pay more. They, they, there is no demand. There's no requirement. There's no regulations. They're just doing this to make it look good and, and, and put something on their report. And so when you see a sustained effort to purchase LNG that is from sources that you can say have low methane emissions or can be verified, then maybe that, that shows progress in the industry. But as of right now, uh, whether there's an appetite, I think the analysts that I talk to say it's still too early to say. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by Abax. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abex Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week. Thank you.